Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Tyler. Today, every parent fears their teenager will get mixed up with alcohol and illicit drugs. Is there a way of telling which kids are more at risk? The rising COVID cases in children. Why are some children seeing higher numbers of children in ICUs while others are not? New research sheds light on how easily the COVID virus can be spread even by those who are fully vaccinated. And who would have thought that pre-pandemic that the intricacies of mathematical modelling would become part of people's everyday conversation and widespread media coverage? The nation is hanging its hat on the Doherty modelling and the Prime Minister keeps doubling down on us, beginning to open up at 70% vaccine coverage of the adult population. Another model out today from the University of Melbourne suggests there's a path for New South Wales to be down to five cases a day by mid-November. And there's hot debate about whether exponential growth and high numbers in New South Wales have stuffed it up for everyone and all bets and predictions are off. The Burnett Institute has been uncannily accurate in its predictions of the current New South Wales outbreak. And one of the people involved in their modelling group is Professor Alan Saul, who's a vaccinologist and a mathematical epidemiologist. Welcome to the Health Report, Alan. Well, thank you for inviting me. So the current controversy amongst many is whether the New South Wales numbers matter in the decision to ease restrictions at 70%. What's your view? Well, um, I guess every time we hear this, everyone quotes the Doherty model and say, I'm going to be bold and also quote the Doherty model. But the Doherty model is quite clear is that there will be restrictions even at 80%. And in fact, I'm not sure that people understand just how intense those restrictions are that the Doherty's model's predicting. So with a reasonable assumption about the efficiency of case detection, the Doherty's model suggests that we would need about 30% of the time in a severe lockdown equivalent to Melbourne stage four, even with 80% coverage. This is not the sort of isolated maybe you know, lockdown here or there. And there's so, a lot so, of assumptions in... behind that, but it's, it's really quite important that people understand that this is not, you know, lockdown free. So just explain what the restrictions are. So this is, is this in the event of, a, of an outbreak? Is, this what, is that what you're saying at 80% coverage? No, so the, the, the 80% coverage assumes, in the model, it assumes that um, that the contact tracing is working partially effective, as the words that the Doherty use. And so that is a really critical part of the of the model. And the amount of lockdown that's required varies tremendously as that efficiency of the contact tracing works. And so the model actually assumes that the contact tracing is as important in reducing the transmission as the vaccine is at an 80% coverage. And very small changes in the efficiency of that contact tracing really make a very big change in how much uh, lockdown we need to maintain COVID at low levels. And, and, and what sort of numbers are they talking about at 80% control? I mean, what's the, what's, what's the story around 80%? I'm sorry, just to, get, to be clear, yeah. I mean, are they talking about hundreds of cases a day in, in Australia, 10 cases a day? What's, what's the scenario that you say you're going to need quite significant restrictions at 80%? Yeah, so it's 80% vaccine coverage. They assume that at that level, that the contact tracing is 88% as efficient as the contract tracing was in Sydney last year at virtually no cases. And that's not with Delta. And so there's a number of 
questions then as to how do you figure out what the uh, efficiency of the contract tracing would be. And so one thing is that Delta has a shorter um, exposure time. So that already makes the contact tracing less efficient. The Doughty model also assumes that a larger proportion of the people will be asymptomatic. And that also decreases the efficiency of the contact tracing. We actually need people to be symptomatic to front up at testing stations. So both of those things, even before we start thinking about what the caseload will be, will decrease the efficacy of the contact tracing. And I think just how much that decreases is a worry, but a 12% decrease in the optimal contact tracing is what leads to a 30% of our time spent in lockdown. And that's before we start adding on the decreased efficacy of the contact tracing because the contract tracers get overwhelmed. Which is what you're seeing now in New South Wales to a significant extent. So the implication then is if the New South Wales numbers are high, then case the contact tracing through no fault of the contact tracers, it's just that they've got too many cases to deal with, um, they, that goes down and therefore lockdown goes up. That, that would be the implication of your interpretation of the Doherty report. Which yes, is, exactly. Which is not what the Prime Minister or indeed Sharon Loon was saying tonight on PM. Yeah, well, I, I didn't hear what she had to say and I'd be interested to catch up. But the, the problem is with the Doherty model and, and most other models, I might add as well, there's this sort of catch-22 that as the cases come up, then the contact tracing goes down. And because the contact tracing is a very significant part of controlling the outbreak, that as the contact tracing goes down, then the cases go up even faster and then the contact tracing gets even worse. And that rapidly spirals then out of control. Um, and so that, that's where the worry is. It's essentially an unstable situation and you don't need a, a large increase uh, before there's a problem. The other thing, if I can just point out, is the Doherty model and uh, is really for the whole of Australia. And in fact, in the model, in the document, they actually point out that you need to consider what's happening regionally, but the model doesn't address that. And so the model starts off with 30 cases in the whole of the Australian population, 26, 28 million that they're proposing. If we were thinking about what that means in Sydney, with eight, well, with New South Wales with eight million and Sydney with about five million, um, you know, we're we're talking only only ten or ten cases. Um, that's tiny. And will New South Wales get back to ten cases, or indeed Victoria, for that matter? Uh, well, um, I think it's a real. I think there is a problem. I'm reluctant to try to predict. You know, if I sort of came and said, oh, there'll be 10 cases on the 23rd December, I know I'm going to be wrong. I, th I think it's just fair to say at this stage that despite everything which has been thrown at the situation in New South Wales since mid-June, remarkably from an epidemiologist's point of view, there's been an absolutely consistent uh, exponential increase. It's been doubling every 10 or 11 days since mid-June. And it seems that nothing that's happened has really shifted that 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 line. Um, and that's not what we saw in Melbourne. So in Melbourne last year, as new controls came in, that exponential increase had a dramatic shift in its slope. But that's not happening in Sydney. So that suggests that as more and more controls are coming in, that other things are becoming less effective. And presumably it's the contact tracing. So, where, other so where does well. it end in New South Wales? 
I wish I knew that, Norman. I am hoping that uh, um, that as the uh, vaccination rate goes up, as as the Premier Berejiklian keeps telling us, that as the vaccination rate goes up, that that will have some impact. Um, maybe some of the more stricter controls that have just come in the last couple of days, like the, the curfew at night, will impact it. But there's a, there's a bit of a problem here. One of the things I've been looking at is not only is it remarkably how consistent the exponential increase has been over the whole of New South Wales, if you look at the exponential increase in smaller areas, so in the 12 high-priority areas for the last month, it's been growing absolutely consistently with a doubling time of 13 days. In the areas that are not part of the 12, now the number of cases are lowering, but it's been growing there consistently with a doubling time of just under seven days for the last so, month. So it's growing faster in the neighbouring suburbs? Much faster, at twice the rate. And in fact, if you just extrapolate those lines out, and again, that's a rather dangerous thing to do, it'll, they'll cross in about three to four weeks. So it's like being in a parallel universe in terms of what um, you're hearing from Canberra and what, you, what you're telling me. Well, um, it is, yes. I mean, there's quite a disconnect. And I, I suspect that a lot of the people who are uh, um, making decisions probably don't understand the Doherty model that well. I mean, everybody's quoting it. Uh, but it's a really difficult document to go through. It's very complicated. I think I, I take my hat off to the Doherty people. It's a remarkably comprehensive document with a huge amount of information in it. But it needs some quite careful thought. Alan, thank you. We'll make get you back. Yeah, well, uh, don't ask me. Oh, I'm not going to give you a prediction, so you can't come back and ask me. I told you so. No, no, anyway. I'm avoiding that. Press yeah. Alan, press Alan so. Okay. Thank you. Professor Alan Saul is a mathematical epidemiologist and honorary research fellow at the Burnett Research Institute in Melbourne. You're listening to Aaron's Health Report. We keep hearing that the Delta strain of coronavirus is a game changer. Its increased infectiousness has meant it's muscled out earlier strains of the virus. It's now the dominant strain globally. And of course, it's the strain we're currently battling here in Australia. But how much of a difference does it make in people who are vaccinated? Researchers in the UK have been studying how well the Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Moderna vaccines protect against Delta and how likely people with so-called breakthrough infections, where a vaccinated person catches the virus, are to pass it on. One of these researchers is Sarah Walker, Professor of Medical Statistics and Epidemiology at the University of Oxford. Welcome, Sarah. Good, good morning for me. Good afternoon for you. <laughs> um, so, Sarah, your study has found that people who got infected after two doses of vaccination, which is what we're mm. told we should get, had similar levels of the virus in their body as people who were unvaccinated. So can you just remind us then of the point of being vaccinated? Yeah, so the, the, the really critical point is that although the vaccines don't work quite as well as they did against Alpha, two doses, particularly of Pfizer and AstraZeneca, are giving good protection against new infections. So the key point is, if you aren't infected in the first place, you can't pass it on. So these vaccines are still really reducing the number of infections. Two doses is definitely better than one. Um, just one caveat, we don't have enough people who've had two Moderna doses yet to look at Moderna in detail with two doses. But on a single dose, it looks just as great as the other two vaccines. 
So what is different is in the smaller number of people who do get infected, with alpha, if you got it after vaccination, you had really low levels of virus, very few symptoms, and we just don't see that anymore. With delta, if you get it, we ha you have almost the same amount of virus in your nose and throat as someone who gets it despite not being vaccinated. And that's really critical. We, we weren't able to look at transmission directly in this study. And, you know, there may be some reasons why you still might not pass it on quite as much. But fundamentally, you've got the same amount of virus in your nose and throat. So you have at least the same potential to pass it on. And that's got really big symptoms? implications. Yeah, are yeah they, they certainly symptoms? are. So we see. Yeah, so, so mild symptoms, we see at similar rates to unvaccinated people. However, we do not see the same rates of hospitalisations. So in the UK at the moment, we've got about 1% positivity in the general population, about the same as we had, you know, September, October last year, but our hospitalisations are much, much, much lower. So the vaccine still stop people getting really seriously ill and dying. So even if you get it, you may get some symptoms, but you won't be as sick as you were. And that's really critical. Oh, and really importantly, <clears throat> even if you've had COVID before, you still do better with two vaccines. So okay. the people who did best of all were people who'd had COVID and then got two doses of vaccination. So you know, it's a really strong reason for everybody to think seriously about getting vaccinated. So you were going to t say what the implications are for these really high viral loads? Yeah, so, so I think the real challenge is that, um, you know, certainly in the UK, people have talked a lot about herd immunity. And so this is the idea that actually um, you can protect society as a whole, including people who aren't vaccinated, by getting enough protection in enough people through vaccination. But the problem is, if people who are vaccinated still have plenty of virus when they get it and can still pass it on, which is what it now looks like, it means that unvaccinated people really can't ever be protected by vaccinated people, which is going to mean it's going to be very challenging to, to you know, to, to protect those people moving forward just from other people being um, protected themselves. And so I guess it really means that every individual person has got to think about doing the most that they feel they can um, in order to, to stop this um from, from really taking off. so Yeah, from well, you know, to stop it from causing more hospitalisations and deaths and really overwhelming the healthcare system. So vaccines alone are not enough to control Delta? So we, we don't know that yet. Remember, what we're actually trying to do is stop hospitalisations and deaths. You know, that, that, that is actually the goal here. Um, and obviously, infections can lead to hospitalisations and deaths. But if we can break that link... You know, we don't vaccinate against the common cold. Um, the virus is almost certainly here to stay with us. And so it's about how do we move to a world in which we live with COVID and it doesn't, you know, overwhelm the health system. So, so at the moment, we're, we're doing well enough stopping hospitalisation and deaths. And it's just about keeping infections, you know, at low enough levels so that we, so that we don't end up um, back in that terrible situation. I appreciate it's very different um, for you in Australia, but in the UK, at least, that's, that's where we are with it. And vaccines are an enormous, enormously fantastic tool in our arsenal to do that because they just do still reduce infections. Even with Delta, we're seeing you know, good protection against people getting infected in the first place, 
it's just that if they do, people need to know that they can still pass it on. And so they do need to take precautions within their household, outside their household. And certainly if you've got COVID despite being vaccinated, you do need to isolate. Very briefly, some countries are giving third doses, booster doses of the vaccine. Is Mm. this something that could overcome this? So again, you know, the goal is to stop hospitalisations and deaths. And actually, we have so few of those in our survey in the general population, we can't even look at that. We don't have any evidence that protection from new infections with AstraZeneca is changing over time. We found small changes, but too small to have statistical certainty. We did find that Pfizer was initially better by about 15%, but its protection did decline. So by four to five months, the vaccines look similar. And again, still giving really good protection, better than we might have hoped for. So they level so out not an immediate about... Co- yeah, they level out, yeah. So, so what I would say to people is there's no immediate cause for concern, but we've got to monitor it. And certainly what's going on in Israel would really support that. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Sarah Walker is Professor of Medical Statistics and Epidemiology at the University of Oxford. Two very illuminating stories there on COVID for you. Parents are getting worried about what they're reading and hearing about the Delta variant in children. The increasing rates of infection are extraordinary, 10 to 15 times higher than last year in adolescents and younger children. Yet in Australia so far, the rate of childhood and adolescent hospitalisation is low at around 2%. But overseas, there are worrying stories emerging, especially from the southern United States, of a massive surge in Delta cases due to low rates of vaccination and mask wearing and a flow through to paediatric intensive care units, some of which are full. Rita Banerjee is Associate Professor of Paediatric Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the United States' leading children's hospitals. To put the Tennessee COVID surge in context, while they have a population that's a million people less than New South Wales, they have nine times the number of daily COVID cases. And that's probably an underestimate because of low testing numbers. I spoke to Professor Banerjee this morning. Well, just last week, we actually had our our second pediatric death that could be attributed to COVID um, in our hospital. Our hospital had to figure out a process for how to allow her siblings and her family members to come to the hospital in order to um, say goodbye to her. So that previously had not, you know, we hadn't had to have a process like that in place earlier in the pandemic. How does it affect staff when a child dies? Oh, it's really, really hard and tough on staff. You know, we're doing the best we can to provide the best care we can uh, to these patients. And, um, you know, morale is really low. We have um, shortages of nursing and shortages of respiratory therapists, of course, who are so important to the care of COVID patients. And what are you seeing in terms of how sick they are, the acuity? My overall sense is that they're not especially sicker. We're not seeing more severe illness with Delta. We're just seeing so much more of it. Some of them continue to require intensive care, but that's we've been seeing that throughout the pandemic. Some children are having some pretty severe manifestations that land them in the intensive care unit. Um, and we can't always predict which children those are going to be that have the, the severe outcomes. And so I think the take-home message is don't let your guard down. Um, this is still, although it's the majority of children do do just fine and handle the COVID infection just just fine, it's not completely benign at all. Give us a sense of the pediatric ICU. 
Well, I think I should start by also saying our hospital was very busy even before Delta variant came because we've been seeing off-season circulation of RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which is, a, as you know, a pediatric infection. So our ICU has been very busy. Our ICU is not full. We're still able to accept patients to it. And that's not the case in some of the surrounding states. You may have seen Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, they're really running low on hospital beds and intensive care unit beds. We still have space, but what I'm really worried about is that we are going to get worse before we get better. So how does that marry with the, the fact that children are lower, at lower risk of severe disease? So children are at lower risk of severe disease, but there are certain children that are still getting hospitalized with COVID. Some of those children are healthy. We can't predict why they will go on to develop severe disease. Some of those children, actually many of them have comorbidities, neurologic conditions, chronic respiratory or chronic cardiac conditions that put them at risk for progressing to moderate to severe COVID that then lead to hospitalization. So I would say we're seeing more of those children who are coming into the hospital. One of the things that's a bit curious about this is, as you've said, it's different from state to state in the southern states of the United States. Britain say they're not seeing pediatric acuity, even though they're getting 30,000 cases a day. We're getting a lot of kids hospitalized. We've got a surge on at the moment, but not many going, not any, in fact, going into ICU at the moment. Why do you think there's a variation around the world? in pediatric ICU admissions from Delta? That's a great question. I think that vaccination rates are playing a, playing a role here. I think the Southern states have had much lower vaccine uptake among the 12-year-olds and older than some of the other states in the U.S., and that could be contributing. We're seeing a lot more infections in the Southern U.S. also because of this resistance to masking that a lot of our population has here compared to other parts of the world and other parts of the U.S. Different hospitals in different countries have different thresholds for ICU admission. The same patient may be admitted to an ICU in one place and just a regular ward in another place. So maybe that has something to do with it as well. So just to be clear, Delta does not appear to be more virulent, in other words, more serious in kids, and serious disease is rarer than in adults, but they're seeing high numbers because the COVID outbreak is so large. Ritu Banerjee is Associate Professor of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Today we bring you another interview in our regular series on substance use. Many parents have angst about the pressures their teenagers will face to try cannabis, alcohol and other illicit drugs. But what puts some kids more at risk of becoming a regular user while others are able to avoid substance use? It turns out the answer might partly at least lie within the brain. Jennifer Debenham is a researcher with the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. I'd probably preface this by saying you can't you can't look inside someone's brain and determine whether they're going to use drugs or not. We really talk in terms of risk and probability. So there are other environmental and social factors at play as well. But a recent review of the of the literature found um, that there are limited neural predictors of single-time substance use. However, for more frequent use, there are some associations, there are some neural associations with more frequent uh, substance use. So um, specifically, um, we found that white matter integrity, so um, this is kind of a measure of the efficiency of neural messaging. Tracks so what, just to explain, white matter is, if you like, the cabling of the brain. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're looking at the cabling of the brain between um, the frontal cortex, so that's the front of the brain, and the limbic system, which is um, kind of towards the middle and deep inside the brain. And the frontal part of the brain is where we've got what's called executive function. This is where we can control our behaviour, control what we say, and also plan how we're going to do things in the future. That's exactly right. And the limbic's more basic than that. That's exactly right. So the limbic is more emotion and memory. What are the features of the cabling that may say, well, this person's more at risk or maybe more destined to use drugs? So it's, it's tricky. So it's white matter integrity, which is essentially a measure of the installation around a neuron. So around neurons, you've got this fatty tissue of myelin and that strengthens our neural connections and it strengthens the speed at which messages are sent. So we find that um, the connectivity of these tracks between the, the frontal part of the brain and the limbic system play a role in risk-taking. So, so reduced white matter integrity is associated with risk-taking and also substance use during adolescence. But isn't that what adolescence is? And therefore, how do you differentiate it from normal adolescence? Because normal adolescents like taking risks. Well, exactly. But this, these are in samples where we're comparing across the board all adolescents and everyone develops at different rates. But there are particular tra trajectories of neurodevelopment which have, say, um, reduced white matter integrity. And that's more highly associated with substance use. So what you've said there is that you know, in, some, in some young people, there is this cabling issue from the front of the brain through to the limbic system, the basic emotional part of the brain. Let's go upstream from that. Is there anything that predicts why the cabling problem occurs in the first place? That, that's a great question and um, hopefully a question we can answer with the ABCD study, which is um, currently tracking young people from age 10 all the way up for about 10 years and they're going to look at what typical trajectories of neurodevelopment look like and then what, what kind of you know, atypical developmental pathways look like because currently we don't quite have this, you know, window of normal. There's so, so many different tracks here. So, um, yeah, in terms of what might promote more negative developmental pathways, it's not exactly within my research area, but, um, you know, from, from other research, you know, it's things such as, you know, that the upstream determinants of health is kind of what you would go into there, which is such, you know, adverse childhood experiences and the like. Now, in the past, we've done quite a, quite a few stories on this on, on the health report. And what we've spoken about is research, particularly from Melbourne, which looks at early use of alcohol, cannabis and other drugs. And talking, and talking about this cabling is that the, the process of growing up is like pruning a rose bush is that you've got this overgrown brain when you hit adolescence and then that gets pruned in fact as you grow up and what happens is that the pruning goes wrong and this cabling does not necessarily go in the right direction and it can be molded to actually not just produce harm but a, a permanent sort of dependence or if you like predilection for drug use. Have you found the same sort of thing? Well, so yeah, you're, yeah, definitely on the money there. So um, yeah, this pruning process is, you know, allows for, um, you know, leaner, meaner, more efficient brain activity. And at some stage, it can go wrong. You know, maybe you have a delayed neurodevelopment, which increases your propensity to use substances, or maybe as a result of substance use, you get this, um, a change in the cabling. But I, I would be reluctant to say that, you know, that this always tracks into adulthood, because what we're speaking about here is neuroplasticity. 
And this is the brain's inherent ability to change. And it's this pliability, this malleability, which is really characteristic of um, adolescence and, and young adulthood. And this, this neuroplasticity offers both the opportunity to grow and to change and to repair, but also this, um, the risk to damage. And it, it does mean the brain is more vulnerable to damage. But exactly how long this, um, this damage may, may last is, is still unclear. The, the jury is still out on that one. Jennifer Debenham is a researcher with the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. Well, Tegan, quite a few fascinating stories there with COVID. I mean, Alan Saul was, I thought, um, devastating, actually. Yeah, the doubling rate stuff is a bit sobering. I'm not really sure what we do with that information. Yeah, and I mean, and it wasn't as if he was criticising the Doherty model. He was just saying that we're all misreading it. Yeah, I suppose more will come out in the coming days. But for now, Norman, it's time to answer some questions from our audience. They've been writing into our mailbag, which, of course, you can write to yourself at healthreport at abc.net.au. So let's go. So John has written in, Doc, and asking, he has he has had spasmodic atrial fibrillation and had a transient ischemic attack or mini stroke about a year ago. He was put on meds to reduce the blood clotting. And interestingly, he's found that the fibrillation has also stopped is this common? So just to translate a bit about that, atrial fibrillation is an irregular heartbeat. And what happens, just, you know, just give you a little bit of the anatomy here or the physiology, is that there are four chambers in your heart. Um, the two top chambers are the atria, and that's where the blood comes into your body on the right-hand side from the deoxygenated blood, comes in on the right side, and then goes into the right ventricle, which are the, so the ventricles are the other two chambers. Then that pumps, it's much more powerful, and pumps the blood through the lungs to pick up oxygen. Then it goes into the left atrium, and, um, and then into the left ventricle to be pumped out to the rest of the body. Now, the atria, atria particularly the left atrium, have a very other, have another important sorry the atria also have a very other important role which is to control the rhythm of the heart so the electrical conduction uh, is controlled from there so the atria if they were allowed to beat by themselves they'd beat at a very fast rate and there's if you like a break an electrical break in the heart which then transmits a much more regular message to the ventricles to beat and um, an atrial fibrillation is when that electrical communication is abnormal. And what sometimes happens or what seems to happen is that the nerves around the entrance to the, um, particularly the left atrium, are sending abnormal messages to the ventricles, to the heart. And then you get this very irregular heart rate and you get, um, and it can be very fast and that you increase the risk of heart failure or it can be slow as well. But what happens is because the atria are not beating properly themselves, they fibrillate, blood pools in the atria and, and you can get a clot forming in the atrium, in the, in the, particularly the left atrium. Oh, and so it's not, a, it's not a coincidence that John has had both of these things. They're probably related. They are related. So some people with atrial fibrillation, not everybody, are at high risk of a clot. And then that clot, because it's on the left side of the heart, can go straight up into the brain, causing a stroke or a TIA, a transient ischemic attack. So that's what's happening there. And sometimes you have a little bulge on the, um, on the atrium called an atrial appendage, which is where the blood can really pull and cause a clot. So there is a... There is a a, a, a risk assessment that you can do on people with atrial fibrillation. But a lot of people with atrial fibrillation at diagnosis should be put on anticoagulants, so blood thinners. And there are various blood thinners that doctors can use in atrial fibrillation. And, um, and that's to prevent 
a TIA. So it may well be that John didn't have the risk factors, but unfortunately did develop the, um, the TIA. So now he's on blood thinners and he's noticed that the atrial fibrillation has also ceased. I suspect that's a coincidence. I don't know enough about it, really. I'm not the cardiologist, but atrial fibrillation does come and go. Um, and, and it's gone for the moment. But whether or not it's gone for good, we'll just have to wait and see. I know that obviously John has had a pretty scary thing happen to him. I'm always just fascinated by how incredible our bodies are as machines. And I don't think we really appreciate just how complicated and wonderful they are until something doesn't work. Then you realise just how much they're working for us when they are working. Uh, that's right. And the electrical system of the heart is just... Truly amazing. And they've, they've got um, a relatively, well, it's not relatively new, they've been doing it for quite a few years and we've covered it on the health report in the past, is that, um, so they, they used to, and still do, treat atrial fibrillation with drugs. You can slow the, 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 the heart rate down by, uh, with beta blockers and there's other drugs you can give into... Beta blockers. Be, what did I just say? Beta blockers, like they stop your heart from beating. Oh, sorry, it was a stupid pun. <laughs> no, oh, of course. Um, and so you can give antiarrhythmics, but also they've got this technique called atrial ablation, which um, is they actually burn these nerves in the pulmonary vein as it comes into the atrium and uh, and try to stop the abnormal electrical rhythms from sourcing there. And, it's, and in some people, it's quite successful. Well, let's stay with the heart or at least with the blood because Libby's asking why or how do doctors choose blood pressure medications? Uh, she's asking, is it the same way as they do for other medications? Do they just basically start with the one that has the lowest side effect profile? And she points out that a lot of people end up moving on from the first option due to an irri irritating cough. What causes this cough? So pharmaceutical companies would love to know how doctors really choose their medications, as would governments and people who, have, who, who are interested in evidence-based medicine. What doctors should do is use simple and probably quite old and cheap drugs, which are quite effective, uh, diuretics and other drugs, um, that are, are basic drugs that are well-proven in, in the treatment of high, of high blood pressure. What happens all too often is that doctors often jump for the more expensive op options uh, rather than the earlier ones. But it is important to get the treatment right first, of all, first up. So there is a bit of variability. The College of General Practitioners does have what they call the Red Book, which recommends to GPs how they should approach the initiation of blood pressure medications. And, um, and, and they do think about side effects. And so some of these drug options might, in some people, not be the right ones. It's, it's complicated, but you know, this, is, this is bread and butter for general practitioners and they all have their own way of doing that. But there is a prescribed way of doing it, um, which they are supposed to follow. Now, what causes the cough is when you're put on what's called an ACE inhibitor. So these are common and safe and very effective blood pressure lowering drugs, but they do have this annoying habit, sometimes in as high as 40% of people of causing a cough. And to be honest, I don't know what causes this cough, but it does tantalizingly act on the same receptor that COVID-19 enters the body or a very similar receptor, the ACE2 yeah. receptor. So it may well be that it's irritating this ACE2 receptor and causing the cough. And I know that every cardiologist listening to us is going <laughs> to get in touch with us and correct me on this, but um, that's the tantalizing thing that could be happening here. And in fact, some people are suggesting using ACE inhibitors in the treatment of COVID-19. Well, if you are a cardiologist and you would like to weigh in this debate, please email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. 
but Norman, another question here from Christopher. What is the possible role of migratory birds as vectors for this coronavirus, of course, meaning SARS-CoV-2? Christopher points out that birds have been known to harbour viruses. It's possible they could turn out to be unwitting Trojan horses that would evade any human lockdown that you wish to employ as a possible control measure. And Christopher makes the point that... Uh, as, as a swan, he's sure that you will already know the answer to this question. Thank you very much, Christopher. Um, I'm flying low on this one. Um, <laughs> look, coronaviruses are carried, different coronaviruses are carried for almost every animal type. Um, we talk about it a lot on, we, last year we did on, on CoronaCast, Tegan. Mm. But um, really, the, the vi- they're not necessarily viruses that can transmit to humans, and they're different viruses from the bats. So it's possible that they could spin off a virus that infects humans. But the real problem with uh, birds and um, respiratory viruses is influenza. So the, this, is, this is where you've got birds passing the avian flu to farm animals like chickens or pigs and they interchange and then they spread to humans. And so the worry is that you get an avian flu, which becomes a pandemic flu. That's the real worry with, my, with birds. And apart from the fact it's so contagious, that's why we'll never be able to eradicate influenza because it has these animal reservoirs as well as us human reservoirs. Correct. A question from Evgeny, who was listening to last week's health report, we talked about ventilation and how it's an important defence against COVID spread. And um, Evgeny makes the point that we mostly spoke about bringing outside air inside. But this person says, uh, what about when the outside air is polluted, too cold, too hot? And perhaps we need to be thinking about scrubbing indoor air by using things like HEPA filters as well. Yes, um, and in fact, Marion Keener at Western Health and her colleagues have, have looked at this issue of ventilation and that we are going to have to um, address ventilation really in a much more sophisticated way than we have up till now. And HEPA filters, in other words, filters that scrub the air and can take viruses out, have been shown to be very effective. And so we, we, we're really tolerating... Um, and I think you covered this last week, didn't you, on the health report? We're tolerating really quite polluted air indoors. Yeah, we're tolerating dirty air when we, we would never tolerate dirty water. There was actually um, a couple of uh, UNSW experts who were uh, writing on the conversation just this last couple of days saying we should be installing air purifiers with HEPA filters in every classroom because it ma- they make the point that it's not just about COVID. Uh, like our correspondent says, it also is about bushfire smoke, which a year and a half ago we were so, so aware of, and asthma. So it's not just about, yeah, bringing outside air in. It's also about improving the quality of our air indoors. And go to last week's health report to hear... Tegan's interview with Kate Cole, who is an expert in this area. One more question for you, Norman, from Thuriel, asking how long after a COVID-19 visitor has been to a venue is deep cleaning recommended? In other words, how long can the virus remain infective in the air and on surfaces? Well, it can remain in the air for probably about three hours or so, depending on the aerosolisation. And on surfaces, it depends on the surface. Um, on more organic, rough surfaces, probably not that long, matter of hours. On steel and surfaces like that, probably a bit longer. But there is controversy over deep cleaning uh, as to whether, as just how necessary it actually is. It's very important for controlling organisms like golden staff. And it's been shown that in hospitals where you properly clean and you 
change the curtains and do that. You can actually control gold resistant methicillin resistant antibiotic resistant golden staph quite well. Whether or not you you catch COVID nineteen from surfaces is controversial. It it probably happens, but it's much rarer than people thought. Nonetheless, it, it people are taking the right sort of precautions and not guessing about it and doing the deep cleaning. How long after it happens? Well, sometimes it happens the next day after something, after an, a, a, a venue has been shut. It's not necessarily very quickly. So it may well be no virus at all by the time the deep cleaning has occurred. Uh, it can't hurt to clean stuff anyway, though, right? That's right. Keep it shiny. Well, that's all in the mailbag for today. And that's all for the Health Report for this week. See you next time. See you then.